Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Every year, everything in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the Black River of Loss, whose other side is salvation whose meaning none of us will ever know. That's Ellen Burstyn, reading on stage in New York City the Mary Oliver poem in Blackwater Woods. You may know that Ellen's been a repeat guest on our podcast going back to our first year in 2014, and we asked her to be a part of celebrating our show at a live event on New York City's Lower East Side just a few weeks ago. Ellen is 91, and as she read, I held the microphone for her, so she could hold the folder in which she'd brought the printed-out poem. And as she finished these lines, she stared into my eyes. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your very life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. I'm Anna Sale, and this is the final Death, Sex, and Money episode for us of 2023, and the last episode from WNYC. We told you a few months ago that our team learned that due to budget cuts, WNYC needed to find a new partner or production home for our show, and that our current arrangement would come to an end at the end of this calendar year. And here we are. And I will tell you, we have felt enveloped by appreciation and love from so many people as we face this transition. From listeners, former guests, podcast industry colleagues, and also from potential new partners, there may yet be more life in this podcast, but I don't have anything official to announce just yet, which is annoying. Trust me, I know. I would also love to know what is going to happen. But for now, stay subscribed to this podcast feed. And I have one more important task for you. Go to annasale.substack.com and subscribe to my newsletter. There's also a link to that in our show notes. This will help make sure we can keep in touch and I can keep you updated on what happens next. Seriously, hit pause right now. Go to annasale.substack.com so we can be sure that we don't lose track of each other. And I have to tell you, 
While the team and I have faced down this ambiguous ending over the last few months, there's also been a lot of beauty. There's all the things you notice together when you're not sure it's something you'll get to do again. And so I wanted to make sure that we didn't just sneak off or wither in the face of uncertainty. I wanted us to celebrate as a team and with you. And so that's why we were on the Lower East Side in a theater in New York City on a Saturday afternoon. We threw a live sold-out show and called it Four Interviews and a Funeral. The New Yorker wrote a beautiful piece about it that we've linked to in our show notes, and we're sharing the audio of it with you today. There were special guests, some people who've been part of our show community for years, including our house band, and I also delivered a eulogy about all we've done together in this era of the show. And we also included some listener voices about what's been important to them about listening to Death, Sex, and Money. Enjoy, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. And now, please join me in welcoming to the stage the host of Death, Sex, and Money, Anna Sale. <laughs> Thank you, Outerboro Brass Band. I am Anna Sale. This is Death, Sex, and Money, and it's also for interviews and a funeral. Thank you for joining us. It's okay. I'm not dead. And the members of the Death, Sex, and Money team are not dead. And we don't even know if the show is dead. However, we know something is ending. Our time, as we've currently made the show at WNYC, is coming to an end. And it's an ending that's happening when a lot of people who do work like we do, that their time doing it the way we've been doing it is ending. Colleagues in podcasting are losing their jobs, facing cancellations. And it felt appropriate because we got to be a part of this magical moment of making stuff for people's ears in a way that was based here in New York City, this, this place of expanded possibility when audio exploded about 10 years ago when we were forming Death, Sex, and Money. That era is closing. Um, something new is coming up. We don't know what that is yet. Um, so we wanted to have a party that feels a little bit like a variety show and a little bit like a memorial service. And that is intentional. Um, and we wanted to do it in the most death, sex, and money way possible, which was, would, is to bring in into one room people who are not always in the same room together. Um, and in that spirit, we are going to welcome two guests to talk with me, who, as I thought about them, I realized they were the most frequently appearing guests on our show over the years. And they have talked with me about parenthood, about family, about big transitions, about incarceration, and about what happens after. Please welcome to the stage Lawrence Bartley and Ronine Bartley. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome, Lawrence and Ranin. Thank, Thank you. Okay. Lawrence, as of this time together, you are officially the only member of the Death, Sex, and Money Five Timers Club. So welcome back for the fifth time. (laughs) And when we first met, uh, you were at Sing Sing. You were not yet out on parole. You had not yet created your journalism career that you are now many years into. And we talked in an episode earlier this year about our impressions of each other that first time we met. Um, And we talked about some mistakes that I made as a reporter, as an interviewer, in putting together some of those early episodes we did together. So I want to ask you, um, when I reach out and ask you to do things for death, sex, and money, why do you keep saying yes? How can I say no to you? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Really, you're always so kind, and especially for my first interview, you know, I was in a I was in a vulnerable space, even though people, I guess people do think of prison as a vulnerable space. Um, And I was talking about some really heartfelt stuff that that went on in my life. And you were so kind about it. And and the eyes don't lie. You know, you didn't feel like you were were out to get me or entrap me in in any way. So every time you asked me again, I couldn't say no. Oh, well, thank you, Lawrence. Thank you for keep saying yes. And thank you for introducing me to your wife, Ranine, who you, we got connected um, back in 2014, very shortly after that first interview taping that I did with Lawrence. And you yes. came to WNYC, mm-hmm. and we did a call-in talk show together where we took yes. calls from other family members who were affected by incarceration. Yes. So we've known each other a while. And mm-hmm. when I just talked with you earlier, <laughs> earlier ahead of this show, you, I was asking you, what's ending in your life? What's new? What's mm-hmm. going on? And f- as long as I've known you, you've worked for the Department of Education in New York City. Mm-hmm. For a lot of years, you were earning, raising your boys, and you were the one working. And now that Lawrence is now out, he's a journalist with the Marshall Project, you all own a home in Connecticut. Your career is going great, Lawrence. And you told me it's new, this feeling of, I don't have to work. Um, but you want to work. And I'm curious <laughs> what, as you've thought about, if I don't have to do this to keep everybody going, why are you doing it? Um, I think since Lawrence came home, I've been living like in his shadow. Um, which is, is, it's totally fine with me. I enjoy living in his shadow. I love what he does. I love that we are, um, financially stable and able. That's what I like to say. Um, but even though we're a married, we're, you know, we're married and we're happily married, I think having your own independence is very important for a woman, um, and I've been doing it for 25 years. It'll be 26 years in March. So to just walk away from something that is totally for me is very difficult to do. You also told me that you, um, yours is a hybrid marriage like mine. One of you gets to leave the house and go to work. And the other one stays at home and works from home. We both work mm-hmm. from home. Yes. We know what that's like as far as the domestic labor that can fall on one's shoulders when you're the one who can answer the door. Mm-hmm. Um, 
How's that going in your family? Oh. So, uh, <laughs> it's not what I expected. Uh, it's it's very hard. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it's you know working from home can be nice. You know you can you can uh, work from the bed and have the zoom on, <laughs> have your camera off. You know, but uh, but but when it, when the kids have to come home and my my ten year old has to go to martial arts, I have to take them. When my when my other son, my fifteen year old, if he wants to go to chorus and she's not around, I have to take him. And I have my dad live with me now, and my, my dad is older, and um, and I have to I have to tend to my dad. I have to feed him. I have to make sure he's home. I have to when he gets in, I have to let him in. Um, I have to wash all the clothes. I wash loads and loads of clothes every day. I hear you, Lawrence. I have to fold the clothes. I know what this is like. <laughs> and, and 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 the hardest part. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm on my soapbox now. It's my turn. <laughs> and the hardest part of it all is that we have two, they're not puppies anymore. They're both one years old. And one is uh, a a Corso. He's like a 140-pound dog. And we have uh, another mini Labradoodle who's like 15 pounds. <laughs> and they are very demanding. They want me to walk them. They want me to be there with them. I have to clean up after them. And... And I feel like I'm doing it almost alone. She helps out when she gets home, but... I don't. <laughs> you don't have to, like, sugarcoat it or anything like that. I don't. I'm tired. <laughs> like, hello? I think that um, we forget, and that's another reason why I don't want to stop working. Um <laughs> Because I think that when you stay home, I think you kind of forget, like, the travel count. We live in Connecticut. I work in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. Not the North Bronx, the South Bronx. So even though I'm not driving in every day, I'm metro-northing it, and I am going through 125th Street, okay, to get the 6th train. That in itself is a job, okay? So um, I get it. Um, but I really got it, and I'm going to share this, because I shared it with my coworkers at work. Um, there was, like, one morning, it was, like, last week, um, or maybe two weeks ago, and, you know, I was getting up early because, you know, I do morning school. Um, you know, I have a lot of meetings after school as well, and um, Lawrence, I don't know what I said. <laughs> I think the dogs were, our dogs were barking. And then he was like, um, are you going to see what they're barking at? And I was like, I'm going to miss my train. He was like, just stay at work. Just stay at work. Like, he literally had, like, a breakdown. Lawrence, you're uh, always so cool. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, but, you know, and... <laughs> In all seriousness, um, you know, I did reflect and I did have a conversation with um, one of the counselors, actually, that works at my school. And she's a certified relationship therapist. (laughs) Good coworker to work around. And, um, you know, I was reflecting with her and another coworker who was a male. And, you know, they said, you know, Bartley, you know, home. You have to know what your what your limitations are. And if the man is expressing himself, then you have to acknowledge it. So it's something that we're working on. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. 
the other thing I want you both to know is um, something that I have really noticed every time we catch up. Lawrence, Ranine, you both ask about Arthur, my husband. You ask how my kids are doing. I married Arthur while we've known each other. I've had two children, one of whom is here, seven-and-a-half-year-old June. Somewhere. Um, And I'm wondering, as you all think about your boys becoming men, growing up, leaving the house, you think about that era of marriage that is coming. I don't know. What is that going to feel like? When you come to that ending of having kids in the house, potentially. Well, he's obviously going to be crying. I'm going to be, like, really happy. I'm ready to travel now. Like, I'm going to be... I think we've done our good work in raising two fine young men. I don't think they're going to leave. <laughs> like, it doesn't happen like that anymore. We, we're counting on 30. But by the time they'll be 30, we'll be, like, close to the grave. Right, Lawrence? <laughs> but um, I'm, looking, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, um, to doing us. You know, there's a lot. Like, somebody coming home um, after being incarcerated for so long and uh, me being there for half the time and, then, like, making that transition... Um, on the outside, we put so much into the quote-unquote cause because we know what being incarcerated feels like and we know what this system is like for the incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people. So Lawrence puts a lot into that and, um, and it's a good thing. But I think that at times we have to kind of step back because in all of that, you forget yourself and doing for yourself. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it, too, though. You I, are I, you? I mean, I'm looking forward to relaxing and, and, and having a break and not having to tend to other beings uh, <laughs> <laughs> for some time. But I won't lie. I will be distracted, you know, because I, I will always... I'm the type of person that likes to take care of others. I don't know why it just happens that way. And I might complain about it, but when I'm not doing it, I feel worse off. Mm-hmm. You know, so if if I'm if we're away and, and the, of the boys go away, I'll be worried about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but any parent would, I guess. I'm the softy in a relationship. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence and Ronnie, thank you for everything. Thanks thank for being you, here Anna. today. Appreciate it. Our next guest is, I think of him, he's not only one of my favorite comedic performers, he's also been a really important inspiration for me over the years. You'll hear more about that. And he's also been a a brother in podcasting. He started his podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, not long after Death, Sex, and Money started. Um, He's been a generous advisor about creative questions, life questions, and he's really funny. Please welcome to the stage, Chris Gethard. Hey, Anna. Hey, Chris. 
we're going to continue on the theme of moving from being a young person into middle age together. How do I bring that up? (laughs) We are both 43 years old. True. When we first met, we were young people in New York City. Hungry artists. Hungry artists. And we were eating hamburgers together. Yeah. And I had reached out because at the time you were making this incredible public access show called The Chris Gethard Show. This is true. It has one fan in the audience tonight. <laughs> okay, let me describe what this was like. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it was like on this random soundstage on the western side of Manhattan, yeah. and I feel like it taped at maybe like 11.30 p.m. on a Tuesday 11 night. 11 on a Wednesday. Oh, okay. Close. I was close. Come um, on, journalistic integrity. Let's get it together. <laughs> and But what was so... The reason I wanted to have hamburgers with you is because it was this example of an artist in New York City figuring out how to make your thing no matter what the corporations or the gatekeepers or the bosses, no one needed to give you permission to make this show. And I wanted to know how you'd figured out how to do that as an artist. There was a weird stretch of my life as a New York City artist where if other artists wanted a pep talk, they would randomly find my email address (laughs) and then we would go get hamburgers. And you were... You were part of that. We and, thank you for that. Oh, no, please. I am, as someone who's really uh, past relevance, and certainly past my peak relevance, to think back to the idea that any artist would have asked me for advice is truly flattering now, just as it was then. Just as it was then. You continue to do stand-up. You have written, you've been an author. You continue to make your show. And also, in the last several months, you took your first full-time job of your adult life. I did. I went from the guy who you asked for advice on, like, how do we buck the corporations, to me being like, I would love to have a boss now, please. Like, can I, 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 I literally approve my checks on a website called Paycom, which sounds evil. It, it sounds like an evil corporation, and I'm like, I'll accept the money, please. Like, it's gone, it, it's really been a, some would say a life shift, others would say a real cautionary tale for an artist. Who knows? Who knows? We're going to go with life shift for the purposes of this conversation. And I want to know, leading up to that choice to take a day job um, after identifying and thinking of yourself as this scrappy artist who can make stuff out of nothing, what led up to you choosing to make that decision? Well, there's a few things. I mean, the most obvious, as you know, because another life transition we went through around the same time is, uh, like, I've, I actually had, my career was still successful, and I would make my insurance through the Screen Actors Guild, which I think everybody in this room has heard in recent years was becoming a more and more perilous thing. The strikes were bad. For me, they were good because I was like, oh, I thought I was losing my mind Mm. getting these residual checks for 35 cents and wondering how I was going to get my health insurance. Now, 10, 15 years ago when we were getting hamburgers, I'd go, great, if I don't have health insurance, I guess I'll just wing it for a few months and then fight it. It's a lot different when you have a child who get. I can't have my kids' health insurance depend on my ability to book roles like the weird janitor on Space Force on Netflix. It's not charming anymore. You know, like that's charming for me. It's not charming to come home. I, I you know, so there was some of that was the reality of having a kid. And also, you know, some of it was just being very honest with myself of do I have the fight in me that I used to have? Do I have as much to say as I used to have? I've, I was lucky. I, I got to say a lot. You know, one of the things I started speaking about in an early wave of comedians was depression and mental health. I took a special to HBO. That's about as far as you can bring the message. So there's also some part of it that was like, I don't have the energy 
I need something more reliable. And I remember being young when the old people insisted on still taking up oxygen in the room. I remember oh. being angry about that. Mm -hmm. And I look at some people now who still have fights to fight. I can't lie. I have a much happier, more peaceful life than I did 10, 15 years ago. I don't have as many dogs in the fight. And I'm insecure about that. And I would not say this to too many people except you in front of an audience. <laughs> you do. You have a magical ability. I do on a pretty daily basis still go like, am I quitting on a dream that worked out pretty well? You know? Uh, did the dream come true? It did it come it true? Could, but the dream came true. It came true. But then one of the things you learn is like your dream comes true. And guess what? This sort of American capitalist idea that achieving your dreams solves your problems is sadly not real. That was a big part of me going, I think maybe I don't want to keep chasing this dream that has so many benefits and so many cushy aspects of it, but that mentally is going to drive me to a place I don't want to go, let alone drag my son and wife into. So that was part of why we moved to New Jersey and why I started planning an exit strategy. And what I think is so neat, we've been calling your job a day job as if it's not really cool, as if it's just a thing you're showing up for. But do you want to talk a little bit about the job? What is the job? You decided so, to be your first full-time job yeah. that was worthy of your 40 hours a week. I, I applied to grad school. I reached out to friends. One of them is here. gave me a recommendation letter. Um, I got in. My wife was like, what are you doing? I was going back to Rutgers, which I spent about the first 10 years of my career explaining how much I hated my experience at Rutgers. <laughs> Everyone in my life was like, what's up? And then I had done some speaking for a great mental health organization called Wellness Together, and I told them this. And they said, if you're serious, we would like to just hire you. We think you can do some good without spending three years getting a degree. So through them, I'm building a new thing called Laughing Together where we're building a whole program to send comedians into schools to teach comedy techniques to try to help alleviate a lot of the anxiety and isolation amongst kids. My so wife cool. was like, my wife was like, that sounds like a day job where you get insurance and also don't flush 20 years down the drain. <laughs> better, better. I'm still concerned, but better. So, yeah. And what have you learned about full-time work that you maybe didn't realize that people around you were experiencing? What's it like to have a workplace and somewhere you have to show up five days a week? I will, ooh, it's, that's a really good question that I'm still in the process of considering because I just started this job this year after 20, first of all, I'm like a feral animal. People will send me documents and then I have to like reach out to my coworkers and be like, how, how do I find What's Google Sheets? How do I find it again? Like, I don't know how to find it. And they're like, okay, there's a row of nine squares in your gym. Click on that. And I'm like, oh, there's so many things. Like, it's really embarrassing that how badly I don't know how to exist in a workplace. And the other thing I would say is I think maybe I fell into a trap as an artist where you almost have to convince... Being an artist, it, it's oftentimes it gets spoken of. You're not a coal miner. I get mad when artists talk about it as if, like, you know, this is not like we're in Harlan County and the boss is sending people. Or West to, Virginia. Yeah, like we're not getting shot at and we're not being forced to pay the company, you know, go to the company store with script. But it is a thing where you have to leap off a cliff blindly at a certain point. And I think to convince myself to do that, I had to convince myself that anyone who would ever put on a shirt and tie and sit in a cubicle was a sucker. And I think that that is sort of a dangerous divide and conquer thing that we all do to each other and ourselves to justify our choices. And what I have learned is that there's actually a lot of 
really hardworking people who are trying to do good. I found something in the nonprofit world, but there's even corporations that are maybe okay, even though there's so many that are evil, um, that it's just like everything else in life. It's not as black and white as I thought. And I also will say this, another comedian of mine who I was saying, like, I don't know if I'm quitting and feel like I'm selling out. Maybe it's kind of sad. And he just looked at me. And I feel like this might be something that, that you could use right now. Okay. He just looked at me and he was like, dude, with the amount of stuff you've done, like... I kind of feel like if you want to slow down, you have the right to pick that option. And it was just this weight off my shoulders of like, oh, I'm making a choice to do this. Like, I'm making choices in my life and they are okay and I have to separate them from the hero's journey of you have to be on a bigger platform than you were five years ago. You have to make more money than you did last. If you ever make less moving forward, that means you're failing. Failure is ultimately subjective and oftentimes, um, when it gets tied up with money, it becomes a really nasty version of subjectivity where you can put a monetary value. And I think when you, I'm old enough now and I'm going through this now and I have self-doubt about it. When I think about money, I stress out. When I think about happiness, there is no contest if I'm happier now or I was 10 years ago. I'm poorer you know, five, six years ago, I made probably quadruple what I'm making this year, but I am maybe, what, one-fifth as rich as I was five years ago and 150 times happier. And it's easy to say that when you're financially stable and a white guy married to a woman in the suburbs of New Jersey. There's other people fighting fights where they don't have all those advantages, and I know it, but for me, I sit here, I go, if I think of my life in terms of happiness instead of money, these all feel like the right choices. And that is emboldening. This is why we got hamburgers. This is why this we is got why hamburgers. This is why you reached out to me to get hamburgers for those gems. Yep. And just to scramble it a little bit, it's not a before and after because it's still a both and. You are still going out and doing stand-up sets. You have a rule, though. Yes. You do it where you can sleep in your own bed at night. I'm trying to make 90% of my gigs where I can drive back to Morris County, New Jersey the night of. So I can wake up and be at the breakfast table with my son. Yeah. So why are you still doing those stand-up gigs? What's the reason when you're tired at the end of a workday, why do you get behind the wheel of your car and drive to a stand-up gig? Some of it is probably just still fear of like if you turn off the faucet completely, can you turn it back on? Right. Some of it's just the insecurity of that. Some of it is also, though, I do think in my heart I'm still an artist. And I do think as an artist, if you don't find some way to express thoughts, they will eventually explode. And there's a reason people, right? There's a reason that the band is here. Like, someone is here playing a tuba at noon. Like, you're driven. You do that. That's a thing. Like, that's a life. That's a life choice, you know? Like... It's a life choice. And, and I say that with love and respect. I say that with love and respect. And for me, it was comedy. And for other people, it's all, other, all different sorts of stuff. You know, like, I, I still think about a lot of the art I like best. And so much of it is like, oh, some guy, you know, the folk artists you hear about, like Henry Darger, where you hear about it, like, oh, he went to the hospital on his deathbed and they found a 30,000-page novel and a bunch of watercolors because that person had to get it out. I'd rather get it out in a small way than on my deathbed them going, like, we wrote a 50,000-page 
oh, this is weird. Like, I'd rather, because it's going to be one or the other. So that seems slightly healthier, but who knows? Maybe in a few more years, I'll actually be confident enough to go, I can turn that off and let that be the past and feel okay about it. But for now, it's part of the transition out. Chris Gethard, thank you so thank much you. for being here today. Thank you, Anna. You're the best. Coming up, the backstory of how I got my start at WNYC so many years ago. And yes, there was some woo-woo manifesting involved. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the very literal portion of the program. This is a marker of leaving one reality, heading towards another that's a little hazy. So we're going to invite to the stage someone who was a guest on our show earlier this year who spends his job in that space with people. Please welcome to the stage, along with one of his repeat clients who is a death, sex, and money listener, Adonis Williams, New York City mover, and death, sex, and money listener, Meryl. Adonis, it's our first time meeting in person today. Yes. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. And Meryl, when I heard your story about Adonis after our episode came out, I was thrilled. I'm so glad you're on stage with him together today. Me too. Adonis, I want to ask you first, when you get to someone's home and you can tell they are not ready to move. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe things are strewn about. Um, What's your approach? How do you get them ready? (laughs) I always say, uh, this is normal. Don't worry about it. But it's not normal. (laughs) And in my head, I'm going, this is going to be a long day. (laughs) Okay, Meryl. Are you talking about me? (laughs) Um, How many times has Adonis moved your things? So Adonis has moved, he's done seven of my moves in the span of eight years. You were how old during your first move? So he helped my family. Actually, my mom found Adonis through Yelp back in 2014. Glowing reviews on Yelp. Glowing, glowing, the best. Um, And so I was 26 at the time. How old are you now? Now I'm 35. 
And tell us what's happened in your life between the time you were 26 and 35. Why so many moves? Well, it was a the last, I guess, nine years have been huge uh, time of transition and uh, a period where I was a caregiver for both my parents. Um, so there was just a lot of back and forth, a lot of moves back and forth to the city, trying to live a young life again, and then taking on a lot of responsibility, helping parents back home with serious illness and life-threatening um, illness. Um, so yeah, it just was, there was a lot happening and it was a traumatic time. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a difficult period of my life. And Adonis, you got to know Meryl's mother and father. Yes. Before they both passed away. Um, and Meryl, what was that like to have Adonis be this person who showed up at the door? Um, he knew your life before one loss. He knew your life before both losses. What was it like to have him as this touch point? Who, who understood where you came from, what your family home was like, what all this stuff meant? Well, it just was extremely comforting, and I just feel so um, safe, I guess, with Adonis, because also my parents loved him. My mom loved him. My dad just, I mean, they both just loved him. And particularly my mom, because she found him and she would tell everyone like, I've got this great mover. His name's Adonis. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's just an amazing man. And the, the things that he does to help women who are vulnerable, just like touches at your heart, especially as a woman and in a vulnerable time. Um, He's just an amazing person. I could like cry thinking about it, but he's just a wonderful guy that just helped me through such a vulnerable time. And Adonis, what was your experience of getting another call from Meryl, hearing there was another reason she needed to move or the family stuff needed to move into storage where it had not been storage before? Like what? What was it like for you having known both Meryl's parents? Well, first I'd like to start when she says the amazing thing I do for women is not sex. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. Even though that, that's one of them. But I, I moved... <laughs> I, I moved victims of domestic violence for free. Yes. If you're going into uh, assistant living, I will move you for free. If you're coming out of forced care, I will move you for free. Um, so I do a lot of free work. And, but people like Meryl who pay the regular rate help me, you know, uh, move people for free. So what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> you were distracted. Um, what was it like to hear from Meryl? Because you don't know what's happening in people's lives between moves. And then you get these updates when they have a new reason they need to move things. So what's your experience of that with, with, a, with someone like Meryl? Well, it's always an adventure when I move Meryl. Like, <laughs> I, I literally have to figure out what to wear that day because I don't know what adventure is going on. I think it was the last, no, that was the second to the last move where we had to move in a storm. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. It was a little storm. Like, we heard over the radio, we started getting these notifications on our phones that, you know, the updates about a storm. We're looking up to the sky. It's not going to be a storm. All right? <laughs> and I kept everybody moving, the whole crew. And um, it turns out it was a real storm. I think it was Hurricane Ida. Yeah. yeah oh. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 
when I tell you people, it was literally falling trees in front of us, flooding, traffic. And we started off as a calm day, just a, you know. It's the quiet before the storm. Yes. And it was incredible when we were done. Trees were falling around us. The, the, The highway was crowded and flooded and people were we were doing detours around the trees and everything oh. yeah there yeah there was a uh, tree across a major highway mm-hmm. to get home and That's you right. guys couldn't get home and then you sent me a photo of your backyard with all the well, a tree fell in my backyard oh, when I man. got home with a tree in my backyard and so there was that move and then you were like let me move again <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but before that so you at one point you'd move so often with Adonis you you called him to ask him about a potential move is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, so the one time I called him, this was this was more recently. I called him in spring 2021. I was single. I was dating. Um, he had moved me uh, into my apartment. And I, I asked him, uh, basically, you know, Adonis, I'm dating. I want to get back into the city, be among eligible bachelors. Should I go move... Um, back into the city. And uh, now she was seeing she was going to go back into the city. I'm going to move back into the city. And, and it wasn't that I was tired of taking her money because I love taking her money. <laughs> I said, I but she th- had such a nice place, this place where she moved at, you know, and I was like, don't go back into the city. It's yeah. the, the pandemic is going on and it's crazy and stay where you are, you know. Yeah. Adonis was like, do not move for any man. <laughs> Out of that nice apartment. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> okay, and then what happened? Um, well, then I I didn't have to move for mm-hmm. any man mm-hmm. because um, basically my now husband, Adonis, moved him into my apartment. <laughs> I knew you were going to say, I thought you were going to say my husband, Adonis. No, it's not me. Wait, so you got the call from Meryl, mm-hmm. my intended my man, yeah. he's coming into this apartment now. What was it like for you to get that call? I was like, now my money is going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, any, any observations about her now husband's things? He's a great guy. I was happy to move them together. I felt like I've accomplished my life's goal to get Meryl. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's true. Now you, your, your family was one, looked one way. Now it looks very different. And Adonis was there through each step of that. Yes, because every time I got a call from Meryl, it was always sad news. Like the mother, uh, first the father had passed away. Yeah. Then the mother had passed away. And so I'm always there. And she always had a lot of work for us to do. It was, this is going in the dumpster. This is going in the garage. This is going into storage. This is going to my new place. It was that type of move every time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I do remember at the end of that move where I had, I was, the executor of my parents' estate, and I had to clear out that four-bedroom house all by myself. And, of course, I called you, but you, at the end of that move, you were like, Meryl, the next time I move you, you're going to be married with a husband and a baby. And I was super single. So I was like, um, <laughs> can you let me know how that might work out <laughs> together? Right. But um, he, uh, yeah, no baby, but uh, husband, check. So <laughs> yep. he just, he's really been a guy who just is really um, an amazing person to rely on during a huge life transition. And and even when I couldn't even see what was ahead. Yeah. 
Adonis Williams, thank you for being a part of Death, Sex, and Money and Meryl's life. Thank you to both of you. This is the eulogy portion of the program. <laughs> As I said at the beginning, um, this is an ending where we don't know exactly what we're mourning. There could be new life just around the corner. Um, but I've learned enough about endings from making this show to know that there's a tendency to rush past endings, especially ones that are ambiguous or not clear-cut, where you don't know what's coming next. Like, like when you finish school before you have a job lined up or when you get divorced and you don't know if you'll ever be with anyone else ever again. I have done both of these things. Um, and I know when you look at that big blank slate in front of you, there's a tendency to rush past the ending and just try to get shit locked down. <laughs> um, and I, I don't want to do that this time. So coming together like this for a funeral, it seemed like a way to mark this ending. And today, as I stand in front of you, I will tell you, I have mixed feelings. <laughs> I am sad. I feel unprepared. I also feel immense gratitude. And I'm proud. And I feel awe at what we built together with the Death, Sex, and Money team, with WNYC, and all of our listeners. Um, and just for context about what led us to this day, I don't want to start when Death, Sex, and Money started. I want to tell you about five years before that. It was 2009, and I was moving to New York City without a job. It was another time when it wasn't a great time to be in New York City without a job in audio or journalism. I actually had a friend introduce me to an audio engineer who was working in New York at the time. And when we had a call, he said, don't come. There's no work. Don't come. And he was totally serious. Uh, and I came anyway. And I was scared. I was working at the time for Connecticut Public Radio and was going to quit that job and come down here. So I had some months to prepare, and I read a bunch of self-help books, one of which was Creative Visualization, that classic. And I came down on the train from Connecticut to New York City to stand in front of the building where WNYC is on Varick Street on the western side of Manhattan. And I asked my husband at the time not my husband now, my first husband, um, I said, we had this plan. I was going to stand in front of WNYC and take a picture opening the door so you could see the sign smiling at the camera because it was Anna going to work at WNYC. Um, and I made that picture my screensaver on my computer. And then several weeks later, when I finally did have a a very early preliminary introductory conversation with someone who worked in that building. I brought that laptop down. I went to a cafe down the block from WNYC, and I opened up the laptop to prepare 
And then I, with panic, I shut the computer with that screensaver and realized there could be real WNYC employees around me seeing this stranger lady with this screenshot, just wishing she could work in that building one day. Um, And then I manifested. It took five years. Um, But in May of 2014, after working at WNYC for some time, doing other things, we were able to launch this show. Uh, It feels like eons ago in podcasting time. But um, just to give you a sense of some of the memories that flashed in front of me, like the first episode of our show was an interview with Bill Withers. Bill Withers, whose song, Lean On Me, was my first favorite song as a child, who's from West Virginia. And I got to talk with him, and he spoke in poems about life in ways that I still remember. He says near the end of that episode, You are born into the situation you are born into. One day you are, and you got to make something out of yourself. And then like two years later, I am on stage at BAM in Brooklyn, pregnant, about to have a baby, and because it's my show, I was like, I want to sing K Sera Sera, the Sly and the Family Stone version, on stage at BAM, and I did. Do you know that song? Just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Hugely pregnant. Then I'm on maternity leave, and Ellen Burstyn is interviewing Gloria Steinem as a guest host. Chris Gethard also guest hosted. And then I got pregnant again. I had another baby. Mahershala Ali guest hosted during that maternity leave. And then Jason Isbell. I think about interviewing Lawrence and also Ranine so many times over the years and getting to know how their family was changing, how my family was changing. I think about going to New Orleans with the Death, Sex, and Money team and interviewing people about 10 years after Katrina in 2015, which led to our first collaboration with the Attleboro Brass Band when they redid the Death, Sex, and Money theme for that series. Jason Isaac pulled this together. He is an audio engineer at WNYC. He also ran the studio session with Adonis when we interviewed Adonis earlier this year at WNYC. So many colleagues helped make this thing. And when I think about the Death, Sex, and Money team, I think about in-person, remote, hybrid, in-person, Zoom calls, Slack jokes, so many comments in Google Docs. I think about... uh, all of the episodes that we finished, more than 400, and how on our show, when you, when you finish uh, an audio thing and you've listened to it for the last time, for some reason you call it bouncing instead of publishing. You bounce it out of Pro Tools. And in Desks and Money, when that happens, someone often goes into Slack and in all caps writes, BOUNCE CITY. <laughs> and the mayor of BOUNCE CITY is Andrew Dunn, who has done that. Eight out of nine years on our show. And then I think about another team memory that has nothing to do with making audio. But uh, some, at some point, we decided we needed to have a team activity, and we were going to do an exercise class in Manhattan where you could go and jump on mini trampolines. <laughs> and then, then executive producer Katie Bishop got a note from that studio. Would we mind that we would need to sign a release because the class we signed up for was also going to be attended by women who were stars of Mob Wives, the reality show. (laughs) 
And we said, we would love that. We signed the releases, and we wore matching WNYC T-shirts and sweatbands in hopes of showing up in the background of one of those shots. We don't know if we ever made the show. And then I want to tell you about our team now, led by Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, who, for the last year as she's led our team, weekly production meetings start on Zoom with us all going off camera and taking a minute to breathe. I don't like this very much. I want to get on with it, but she makes us do this. We have to breathe and get centered and get out of the rush to meet deadlines. And then we come back on camera together and we turn to our Google Doc that is our team agreements that she led us through making. A few of them, they're so great. A few of them are, we do what we say we're going to do. We follow up. We take seriously the work, but we don't take ourselves seriously. But I want to tell you that we actually really do take this work seriously. Because we know it's delicate work that we do with our guests, what we ask them to share with us. And we also know we want to meet our listeners and we want to stretch them. And we also know that we are creating records with these recordings that endure. Like I've been thinking about the people who aren't with us anymore who were on Death, Sex, and Money. I think about Bill Withers and John Prine. I think about Norman Lear this week, Madeline Albright. I also think about Jeff from our episode When I Almost Died or Katie from our episode about siblinghood. Both of those episodes were what we call listener stories, where we collect together all of these stories from Death, Sex, and Money listeners. And you have shared so many stories with us. I remember sitting at my desk at WNYC very early on in the show and being urged by Chris Bannon, our then boss, to figure out how to do listener engagement. And I was like, what does that mean? Um, but then I thought, oh, people have smartphones, and I've used, like, that voice memo app to record myself when I'm tracking a story for the newsroom. Maybe we could tell everyone who has a smartphone they have this voice memo app, and they can record themselves and send it to us, email it to us. It's easy, and we gave instructions in our early episodes, and our podcast is so old that this felt like a new idea at the time. (laughs) And then they did it. Like, I can remember a listener for our episode about cheating. She was telling the story about her partner cheating on her and the pain, and you could hear her driving and the windshield wipers going in her car while she spoke. And I think about the early weeks of COVID when we heard from an ER nurse talking about what it was like to have to go into work while she was out on a morning walk before heading in. You could hear the sounds of mourning. And then I remember what it was like to make our series about student loan debt and all of the hundreds of stories of people just pouring in with this feeling of like, we did what you told us to do and now we feel hoodwinked and stuck. All these voices. And I think about Tony who wrote us an email just to tell us what it was like. He had a child who was a toddler that he learned was not his biological child. And he wanted to talk to us about it. I talked to the man who found out he was the biological father, and they told me about what it was like to together take the crib out of Tony's house and put it 
in the other man's truck. And I think about Rachel from the United Kingdom, who rode in after her husband had a traumatic spinal cord injury soon after they got married, and she wanted to know if he'd ever done an episode about dealing with paralysis in a marriage, and we hadn't, and we asked if they would talk to us, and they did, and then they did again. And then I think about just last week, um, we're doing this episode that's coming out soon about inheritance, and I talked to this postal worker from Manhattan, Kansas, and he wanted to talk about inheritance in the context of what happened after his father's suicide 10 years ago. And I asked him, I was like, why, Trevor, did you send in this voice memo? And he said, among other things, well, you asked for men to send in stories because you'd heard from enough other people. Men are always slow to share their stories. And the other thing he said um, was that, you know, it's one of those things, it's been 10 years, uh, it's one of those things that I think about a lot and need to talk about more. <laughs> And he said it with a straight face. Like, he just, he was sincere. Um, and then he also told me how, before, when he knew we were going to record with him, but before we did it, it was Thanksgiving. And at the Thanksgiving dinner table with his four brothers and his mother, they talked about what he might say. And it was the fullest conversation they'd had about his dad's suicide in about five years. And so, this show has accompanied you through a lot of things. You've told us that. Um, we also know that's how people listen to podcasts. You probably listened to us while you were doing dishes or maybe walking your baby or walking your dog or jogging. But your life has changed while we've been together. Um, let's listen to what a few listeners have told us about that. Death, Sex, and Money has seen me through questioning my gender identity a divorce, a remarriage, difficulties with children. This podcast helped me get through those early days of motherhood when I was very isolated and alone. And this show kind of walked me through the darkest years of my life, losing my brother to suicide and changing careers and going into the mental health field. When you guys first came on the air, I was a stay-at-home dad raising my beautiful children and over the course of our relationship between me and you guys I was motivated to go back to university and get my master's in social work. My sister sent me an episode of Death, Sex, and Money in which people talked about their experiences with infidelity and listening to the stories that people shared was a lifeline for me. It made me see that the people in that episode were not monsters and that maybe that also meant that I was not a monster. I also went back and listened to your series on estrangement. And during the pandemic, I began to experience that for myself from my family of origin. And I just thought it was my fault and that there was something defective and wrong with me. And... Hearing other people's stories really helped me. I was interested in the sex, interested in how you get through a divorce, and I was surprised at how incredible the stories were, and it was good to hear what other people were going through. I think hearing Anna talk to strangers and have these really difficult but kind and compassionate and very 
direct conversations fundamentally changed the way I communicate with people in my own life. As you talk with people about their own mental health struggles, it helps to demonstrate to students what individuals sound like when they're talking about their issues, not in a therapy office. It allows me to have a framework to talk through something really difficult related to death, sex, or money. And there's absolutely a moment in every episode, no matter how intense the subject matter is, where I get to do a little shriek of laughter that if anybody could hear, I would probably sound like some sort of crazed baboon. Love you guys. Love what you do. (laughs) Bye-bye. Me too. I love the legitimately hilarious moments we have shared together. And also I've loved the way that we figured out how to laugh about um, the absurd places that heartbreak can take us. And um, it's really heartening to hear that back from listeners because that's the idea of the show, that this stuff, death, sex, and money, all the hard stuff, there's no easy fixes for any of it. Um, But the one thing we can do is talk to each other about it and lighten that load a little bit. And hopefully, as we all learn to do it more, we build that muscle. You are more capable then of facing facts, getting through, standing up for yourself, letting go of something that's no longer working. I learned a term for this just in our new episode this month, productive discomfort. Um, Two leaders of a job training program from single moms in Wyoming told that to me. And I really like that productive discomfort because it's not just about figuring out what you need. There's something to that about taking in things you don't want to hear, of being able to hear when you've hurt someone, misunderstood something, or an outcome that you wish would be is not what's going to happen. Like there's not enough money in the budget and you have to re- think about you have to think about how you're going to structure your life and the routines you've become accustomed to and letting something end even if you don't feel ready i've told myself it makes room for what's next it could be better it could be worse more likely it's going to be a mix a little bit better some things less good. But no matter what, a lot of endings in our lives we don't have control over. When the train is pulling out of the station, you just have to get on. And so I want some help from Bernie Wagonblast. Bernie, can you come on stage to help us get on the train? Hello, Bernie. For those of you, Bernie, please stand next to me. Oh, sure. <laughs> For those of you who don't know Bernie, you may not recognize her, but you have likely heard her voice in New York City if you've ridden the one train, the two train, the three train. <laughs> she is one of the many voices of the New York City subway system, as well as other transportation systems in the region. And she was on our show talking about 
another a, a big change in her life mm-hmm. in this last year. She has been publicly living as a woman since almost a year. You're yeah, almost January first. January first. <laughs> and so we are so glad that Bernie is here with us to help us think about getting on the train, and also what it's like to go through a really big change. And I want to ask you, Bernie, just in summation, the last several months in your life, I imagine there's been some things that have been wonderful, Mm -hmm. some unexpected things, maybe some things that you miss or are trying to figure out. Um, What's it like? Do you feel less afraid of change? Oh, definitely. One of the things that I've noticed is anytime I'm doing something new that I've never done for the first time, like appearing on a stage in New York City on a Saturday. (laughs) There's some nervousness that goes along with that. But every time that I've been nervous, I've found that it turns out just fine and there was no need to be nervous in the first place. So Bernie's going to walk us through this. I want everyone in this room... Your ending might quite well be different than my ending, but there's something in your life I'm betting that you've, that has ended and maybe you're still holding on to, or maybe you're fearful of it coming. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's something external, not external, but something internal. You're feeling the seeds of change um, and not quite sure if you want to pay attention to them yet. Maybe your kids are getting older. Maybe you're getting older. So just think about that. And I want you to take a minute and hold it in your mind. And Bernie, help us let go of needing to understand and predict and know what's coming next and help us take that step forward in your subway voice. (laughs) The next... Uptown, two, is approaching the station. Please stand away from the platform edge. Let's take a ride, everyone. (laughs) The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote this theme music that you're hearing now, which is a song called Take a Ride. So you can think about stepping onto a train every time you hear it. The Outer Borough Brass Band is led by our beloved colleague, Jason Isaac, an engineer at WNYC, who's been a collaborator with us going back to our very first episode when he ran the studio session for my interview with Bill Withers. Jason was on drums with Joe Scataza on the tuba, Scott Bourgeois on the sax, Jeff Pierce on the trumpet, and Jay Walter Hawks on the trombone. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by the whole Death, Sex, and Money team, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster Thomas, Andrew Dunn, and me, with help from Emily Botine, Ellie McKay, and Ben, Ann, and Lenny, and the great production team at Caveat in New York City. You can see beautiful photos of this event on our Instagram at Death Sex Money, thanks to photographer Scott Lynch. Thank you for everything. Thank you for listening. You made all of this possible. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Mm-hmm.